The future could be brilliant. A personal inquiry into why much of the world seems crazy and what to do about it. Part 7. Our House How to create a system of government in which the social dominators, the sociopaths and authoritarians do not have power, do not make the decisions which govern our lives, do not make the laws designed to protect us from being preyed upon, controlled and manipulated by them. How do you contain the oppressors and fundamentalists? How do you contain the gangsters and bully boys, the extremists and fanatics? How do you create a system that respects and values nature, the fabric of existence that we are an intrinsic part of and upon which we all depend? How do you counteract the influence of the Kurgans and their kind who have distorted humane human culture over thousands of years? There is such a system, of course. It's called democracy. Best understood, perhaps, in Abraham Lincoln's words from his Gettysburg Address as government of the people, by the people, for the people. We know that the vast majority of people are humane and caring. Millions of good people have given their lives to defend and uphold democracy over generations. People instinctively recognise that this is what is right and just, no matter how they've been oppressed or conditioned otherwise. Maria Gambutis's desecrated Garden of Eden culture continually tries to recreate itself, like new growth in spring. The only problem, as we've seen, is that democracy is just as susceptible to sociopathic and authoritarian distortion as anything else, the result being government of the people by the few for the benefit of the few. Through all the shenanigans of the Scottish referendum debate, one voice caught my attention. It was a young man who was being interviewed in the radio, and he expressed the wish that people would choose hope over fear. Of all the things discussed, this stood out for me. So is there hope? Will environmental or financial terrorists destroy everything we have worked for? Will our children have a positive future, or any future for that matter? Can we break out of our narrow confines and recognise what we need to do to counteract the distortion that clearly exists and threatens all our futures? You may be heartened to know that most everything is in place for this to happen. As I said at the beginning, the future looks very bright indeed if we have the courage to support those who can lead us in the right direction. Also, we don't have to start from scratch. People have strived for thousands of years to restore a humane society. We have the makings of a genuine democracy. All we need to tackle is the distortion. If we build on what we already have, then a healthy future's not far away. There is in fact a brilliant and simple idea that can be put into action relatively quickly that could transform the whole political power environment. The fact that you may not be familiar with this idea is not surprising, because if it was enacted, 
power would shift significantly from those in the first-class railway carriages to everyone else. And that's the last thing that those in power want. So what is it? What am I going on about? Anthony Barnett and Peter Carty call it the Athenian option in their book of the same name. The Athenians in ancient Greece found that electing people to positions of power was open to abuse and attracted the kind of people who were susceptible to self-interest. No surprises there then. So what they did was to develop a system where citizens were selected at random to serve a limited time in governance. I should say that women and slaves were not allowed to participate, so this was a very limited democracy. But the idea worked well, and has been used by others right up to the present time. The Greeks had a fancy name for it. They called it sortition. But don't switch off. It's actually a simple and straightforward idea. It's essentially the same system that's used to select people to serve on a jury in a court of law. We're happy to allow a random selection of citizens to decide, after hearing the evidence, whether someone is innocent or guilty of breaking the law. Would it be so hard to imagine a random selection of citizens becoming involved in the making of these laws in exactly the same way? That's what the Greeks did, and many others have successfully emulated since. Anthony and Peter have suggested that sortition becomes the basis for operation in the House of Lords, the Upper House. Laws created by our politicians in Parliament would be scrutinised by members of the public based on the evidence presented for their efficacy, and approved or not. In other words, the politicians would be accountable to the people. Not just once every five years and what they say they'll do, but on an everyday basis about what they actually do when in power. At a stroke, we could start to rebalance the distortion in the system created by the heartless and headless. Overnight, government could be freed from the power of wealthy funders and lobbyists, the elites and privileged. The idea of sortition gained new life in the 1970s, when independently in the USA and in Germany, Ned Crosby and Peter Diner developed new methods of democratic participation involving randomly selected citizens. Ned came up with citizens' juries and Peter developed planning cells. They didn't become aware of each other's work until the mid-1980s. Both methods have been extensively employed and developed since. Various forms of sortition have been used subsequently in the USA, Germany, Denmark, the Netherlands, Spain, Australia, Canada, Japan, Israel, China and elsewhere around the world. In 2013-14, the Irish Convention on the Constitution, for example, involved 100 people, two-thirds of whom were randomly selected and deliberated on amendments to the Irish Constitution for over a year. Similarly, in 2017, the Irish Citizens' Assembly, with a chairperson and 99 people randomly selected to be broadly representative of the Irish electorate, considered some of the most important issues facing Ireland's future. These forums created the foundation and consensus 
for subsequent changes to the law on difficult issues around marriage and abortion, which were widely reported and celebrated. The terms deliberative democracy and mini-publics are used as general terms to describe this kind of approach to democratic decision-making. As you can gather, this is a well-tried-and-tested approach and is still evolving. A crucial assumption is that ordinary citizens are both willing and able to take important decisions in the public interest. When I first heard of this idea, I immediately pictured various people who I might not be too happy about taking important decisions that could influence my life. Then I pictured numerous politicians who were already doing this and quickly altered my view. The evidence over many years and in many different countries and situations is remarkably positive. Graham Smith in his book Democratic Innovations quotes a number of people who have researched this. Simone Chambers wrote, In observing the quality of debate in many of these forums, one cannot help but have one's faith in the capacity of ordinary citizens renewed. These forums tend to bring out the best in people, showcasing such deliberative virtues as respect, tolerance, common sense, fair-mindedness, and, most important, a willingness to be persuaded and change one's mind. Anna Coote and Deborah Matteson said that If the jurors have enough information about the matter at hand, and if they have the opportunity to discuss the matter amongst themselves, they can be trusted to take decisions on behalf of the community that others can safely regard as legitimate and fair. And in their analysis of a series of citizens' juries in the UK, Joel Lenehan and Anna Coote stress. Right from the start, we were deeply impressed, as were most other observers, with the level of competence with which jurors tackled their task. And John Parkinson was quoted as saying, Jurors generally feel a sense of responsibility to the wider public interest, take their responsibility seriously, and act as if they were being held to account. The fear that citizens might make irresponsible recommendations proved unfounded. Louise Caldwell, writing in The Guardian in 2019, about her experience of taking part in the Irish Citizens' Assembly, said, I would definitely take part in a Citizens' Assembly again. I felt empowered and informed. It gave me the language and skills to have difficult discussions. In a room of a hundred people, only a handful ever tried to create division or build walls among us. I think most people want to find things to agree on and to discover common ground. Through this, we can always learn new ways to go forward. Another Irish participant was quoted as saying, It was fantastic. One of the best experiences of my life. One of the most interesting examples of sortition in action was in Canada, with the government-established British Columbia Citizens' Assembly on electoral reform in 2004. Graham Smith quotes the chair, Jack Blaney, in the introduction to the report. The members of the Citizens' Assembly... British Columbians who unstintingly gave their time and energy demonstrated how extraordinary citizens are when given an important task and the resources and independence to do it right. Over the 11-month course of the Assembly, only one of 161 members withdrew and attendance was close to perfect. Their great and lasting achievement 
is the birth of a new tool for democratic governance. With an impressive commitment to learning so many new concepts and skills, and with a grace and respect for one another in their discussions that were truly remarkable, the Assembly members demonstrated a quality of citizenship that inspired us all. If you have any doubts about how well people respond to being given this kind of responsibility, then this endorsement must surely put your mind at rest. So why then is this not happening here in Scotland and in the UK? In fact, the UK has run hundreds of citizens' juries and assemblies, and the UK Institute for Public Policy Research has been a major promoter of the idea. Even the Labour Party at one time seemed very keen, and Gordon Brown recently suggested the People's Assembly to help sort out our relationship with the European Union. However, when it comes to actually conceding power and allowing citizens to directly influence government policy, enthusiasm for the idea from the major political parties is still a long way to go. We can't expect those in power to stand aside and let us get on with it. Anthony Barnett and Peter Carty put the idea of sortition to a royal commission on the reform of the House of Lords and were rebutted. Electing members was the big new idea that the commission favoured. It worked so well in the House of Commons, why not have more of the same? People have essentially been deceived that what we have is the best we can get and there are no radical or useful alternatives. The long historical record of the successful use of sortition has clearly proved otherwise. Time is not on our side. We need to sort this ourselves and as quickly as possible. Given that the sad are not going to go along with this, is there any way that this could come about without violent revolution or conflict? One way that might work would be to go ahead and establish a parallel system, a genuinely accountable upper house, our house. When people see just how good a system this is, I've no doubt that there would be an overwhelming public will to replace our lordly and anachronistic charade with the real thing, a truly democratic upper house. As far as I can see, holding our politicians to account by reclaiming the House of Lords would be amongst the most effective ways to nurture genuine democracy, an antidote to sociopathic and authoritarian distortion. Employing sortition and genuinely informed exploration of the problems we face offers us the chance of a calm and canny way to find sensible and sustainable solutions. Rather than the barracking brawl often evident in the House of Commons, exploration of problems could be conducted in an even-handed, open and considerate atmosphere. The all-or-nothing emotive confrontation of Westminster would be transcended. Among the first to benefit would be women. In our house, men and women would have equality, possibly the first national legislature for thousands of years where women would be truly respected and given the rightful place at the heart of things. Isn't it staggering that women have been sidelined for so long? Apart from fulfilling a thousand and one roles from carpenter to queen, 
Women are the prime nurturers of our children and families. Who better could we ask to help create a culture in which we can all thrive? When I talked earlier about the idea reported by Fritjof Capra that radical change can occur naturally and spontaneously, I understood that it was easy to dismiss this as perhaps fanciful and wishful thinking. But it seems to me that the rise of interest in people's assemblies is a good example of what Fritjof drew our attention to. A quiet and effective movement that's changing things without violence, without bloodshed, without disruption and suffering. The friendly revolution that's happening as we speak, listen, breathe. After a time of decay comes the turning point. The powerful light that has been banished returns. There is movement, but it is not brought about by force. The movement is natural, arising spontaneously. For this reason, the transformation of the old becomes easy. The old is discarded and the new is introduced. Both measures accord with the time, therefore no harm results. In the next and last episode, will the truth set us free?